0: all right so um still not okay now we got it so good to see you
1: zach you said you had a question about nirvana can you elaborate on your question
2: yeah i can Um, so my question is how is nirvana obtained how does it happen or unfold? And is it an oxymoron to want to obtain Nirvana? Okay.
1: Now I hear the echo again.
2: Maybe I'll I'll pop in some earbuds and that will fix the issue.
1: Wait wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now it's gone again. It's gone again, so we're good to go. Um, So the the. The question about Nirvana is often asked uh, in the way that you're asking it, because this is a very kind of Western way of of looking at things. That in fact, uh, Western Buddhism has a lot of issues about attaining things. There's a lot of attainments, okay? They attain meditation states, they attain jhanas, they attain sodapan, or they attain nirvana, or something like that. And uh, this is all the point about the attainment is going in the wrong direction. A much better way of looking at it is, is that you've already attained everything that needs to be attained. All right. That, that life is not just doing one job after another after another. That life, in fact, should be doing just enough to be completely satisfied, so you don't have any more to do. And when there is more to do, you do just enough, and then you're satisfied again. So let's introduce Nibbana from the perspective of one of the ways that it's taught. Uh, That in fact, the original word Nibbana, the Buddha was very good at taking words that already existed, and giving them a slight twist of definition a more noble way of looking at it. But the word Nibbana still has the same thing that it did back then. It's in the Western mindset that they made it so big and so gross and so grandiose and, and so finalized um, that in fact, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has uh, a book. Uh, uh, the name of it is Nibbana for Everyone. And in that, he talks about little Nibbanas. That what we need to cultivate and develop is little nirbhanas. Because that will go in the direction of having longer lasting or slightly bigger nirbhanas. So that that's all that we're interested in is having just a a little nirbhana. This moment will do. I don't need nirbhanas forever. Just one now will do fine. And yet the Westerners have this time capsule built in that right now doesn't mean a thing. It's got to be enduring. Now is not ever good enough. The future has to prove that now was good enough. And you see that as part of the um, um, uh, capitalistic view in the sense that the guy says, I made some money on the stock market. And the old man says, yeah, but can you keep it? Can you make it grow? Now is not good enough. We've got to do better next time. Okay. So when we recognize that a little nirvana means that right now, in this very moment, things are okay. They're cool. That in fact the original definition of the word nirvana was used in two contexts. One was in the context of animal training, and the other was used in context of, of cooking food. So we can think of it this way, that when the food is cooked, we take it off of the stove to let it nirvana, to let it cool, to let it chill off a bit because food just coming right off the fire is too hot to eat. The same thing is true with, um, uh, let us say the domestication or the capture and training of wild horses, wild elephants. And these two, by the way, uh, it's fairly well established in in the suttas that because he was a prince in his early days, that the Buddha actually, um, as a prince, learned all about horse training and all about elephant training. And now he recognized, oh, the, the training of the human mind is very much like the training of an animal. And that the first thing that they do with the elephant before they actually teach it the skills that they want, like the skills of warfare, the skills of uh, uh, bearing riders and and bearing weights and all of that, is that they have to get the elephant to chill out. (laughs) And how they do that is by uh, staking normally the back hind leg of the elephant especially a bull elephant, they will take the hind uh, left leg and tie it uh, with a vine or a rope to a stake in the ground. And you would think the original point was that they've got to stake that stake in the ground so strong that the elephant cannot leave. Hmm. Actually, no, that's not what happens. That The thing of it is, is that these elephants are fairly big thing. Even if you suck a whole tree stump or a tree log into the earth, if that elephant is able to take that left hind leg and stand on the other three and just swing it to its limits, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, it's going to weaken that vine. It's not steel. And it's going to help uh, loosen that log that they've got uh, uh, fastened to the ground and the elephant's going to escape. Mm-hmm. But the man who knows something about the elephant. He knows where he's going to go to because the elephant always goes home. It always goes back to his favorite place. Mm-hmm. So the animal trainer knows exactly where that elephant is. He goes and captures it again, stakes him out again, and goes through this several times. And then the elephant begins to get the point next time that he's uh, uh, tied up, oh, what's the use? Even if I do get free, they'll just go get me anyway. Which is different than the elephant has never escaped. Because if the elephant has never escaped, he always has the idea, I can't escape, I can't escape. But the training is, oh, yes, you have escaped, and it didn't do you any good.
0: Hmm.
2: Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard that analogy applied to uh, the breath, like the mind will wander away, and you bring it back. So you have like that stake for the mind to keep coming back to.
1: That's exactly the analogy. Is is that we stake the mind to the breath. And the mind will wander away and we keep bringing it back and bringing it back. And in the process of bringing it back and reestablishing it, that the mind gets more comfortable being there, especially when we're practicing that. So the, when an animal divan that means that he's no longer trying to escape, mm. that he finds his freedom where he is. And that in fact, the elephants quite like to be around humans anyway especially when you get free food. I mean, the humans are bringing the food, and all he has to do is carry a trifle here and there. So, this is what it means about domesticating of animals, is that they have to nibbana. And they nivana along with the training, but right from the very beginning, they need to nirvana some. Well, this is what we do with house dogs, house pets all the time. And in fact, the I've got dogs in Nirvana right here on the porch. Because they're not interested in doing anything. They're not interested in escaping. They're not interested in going and getting anything. So in fact, you were correct in asking the question, is nirvana something that you want? And the answer to that is is that wanting Nirvana is is solid proof you don't got it and you won't get it <laughs> so long as you want it. Because nirvana is the satisfaction that everything is already okay. Or the point about the food now is that once the meal is cooked, you take the food out of the oven and let it cool, nirvana, and then it can be eaten. You don't want to eat it before it's cooked and you don't want to eat it while it's still hot. You want to wait until after it's cooked, after the job is done, You could cool off. That's what people do. I mean, imagine a prize fight, a 15-round heavy-duty world champion boxing match. And after the 15 rounds are up, both the winner and the loser both go get a massage and relax. And in fact, you could say the end of every 15-round prize fight is Nirvana because they can rest and relax when it's over. So wanting to attain nirvana is almost a, that's the oxymoron. Because nirvana is after the catching is done, or after the food is cooked, or after the mind is uh, 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 captured and, and on the the breath. You see, they even talk about it in the sense of the monkey mind. That hmm. jumps and jumps and jumps and jumps and jumps. That's like the wild animal or the wild elephant or the wild mind. It just jumps and jumps and jumps. But one of the things that we have to look at is the reason that the monkey jumped, monkey mind jumped, was because it was not satisfied where it was. And so it jumps to some place new, and then it winds up being not satisfied there, and so it jumps again to some place new, and then it's still not satisfied, so it jumps again.
2: Sounds familiar.
1: <laughs> uh huh. So what we need to
0: do is to practice being satisfied that we like it that we can find joy in it. Now there's, a,
1: there's a, um, a trick in there and that I've seen many students go through this. In some, some cases it's like this, that he practiced, he heard what I said, he got a big load out of it, he felt really good, he goes, he practices and he feels really good, he's got satisfaction and joy and all that kind of stuff. The next day he tries it and he doesn't have quite the same level of satisfaction and joy and so he wants more. He's actually at that point now bringing in the critical mind that's comparing today with yesterday, but it's not actually yesterday. He's comparing it with it's a built up exaggeration of yesterday that he's having in his mind to compare today with to see that today's not good enough.
2: Right.
1: Okay. So another way of looking at it is, is that it's not actually joy that we're trying to cultivate so much that the joy comes along with the satisfaction that is satisfaction that we're actually cultivating of being OK with how I feel right now. And if I feel really OK with the way that I feel right now, even if it's gloomy. By being satisfied with it, at least I'm taking some joy in being satisfied with it, and that satisfaction then will bring the gloom out into joy. But the satisfaction is what we're looking for here. Like after the job is done, we're satisfied that the food is cooked, now it's time to let it nirvana, let it cool off. And so that's also the same with the monkey mind. Now that the monkey mind has landed here, wherever here is, let him become satisfied enough with it so that he becomes comfortable there. Mm -hmm. And the comfort and the satisfaction together then
0: become nirvana or the cooling off or the chilling out.
1: That, in fact, we have that built right into our language It's part of our culture. In Thai language, they have Jai-Yen. Now, the word Jai actually has many different uses, but they always point to the word heart. heart. But everything else around it is Jai-This and Jai-That. Jai-Ron is hot heart. Jai-Yen is cool heart. Jai-Dam uh, is black heart. Uh, Plek-Jai is surprised. So they've got all of these different words around the word Jai, but I'm looking at the word jai in the sense that that's what they tell people that are hot. Jai-yen, jai cool off, settle down. <clears throat> we hear that in, in, in school when the teacher is trying to talk and the kids are in the back talking and the teacher hears it, she'll say, cool it. That's another use of the word right there. The whole idea is cool off, which means that heat has the quality of of agitation or movement. And agitation and movement is doing the job, working, getting the job done. Once the job is done, we can rest. So what we need to do then with our practice is, is to find task to do that are so easily done that we can congratulate ourselves for doing that task yet once again and then relax and we feel successful because we've done that task and that task is both very easy to do dead easy and also almost almighty in this difficulty it depends upon your opinion of it Most people think of it in the sense that it is very, very difficult because that's the Western mentality of it. In fact, what we're talking about here is change. Hmm. And the West has an idea that things are change, that things can change, but it's very difficult to get them to change. The progress is slow, okay? Hmm. And that the Bible is actually based upon this in the sense that especially uh, the writings of Paul is and his basic statement is, hey, man, you can't do without Jesus. You're not good enough. You can't change. You need Jesus to be saved. You can't save yourself. You don't know how to do that. And if you did, who are you to be good anyway? Only God is good. You hear all of that stuff. And it's built into our culture. But almost the idea is, is that when we're children, we're like wet cement and we can be formed and shaped into something when we're still wet. But when we dry out, we're solid and we can't be manipulated. But in fact, the reality is, is that the brain is goo. It's it's goo as a baby, it's goo as a child, it's goo in adulthood and it's goo in old age.
0: It's not
2: fixed. We we talk about having a growth mindset. Um, So. Yeah, like uh, I suppose a fixed way of looking at things would be, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks.
1: That's it. That's that's another expression of that can't teach an old dog. New tricks. Guess what? Old dogs can learn new tricks when dogs want old dogs want to learn a new trick. The Mm -hmm. trick is is getting them to want to do it. and then they can learn that's very interesting that way is uh uh, humans are that way too not that different from dogs
0: Mm.
2: yeah Uh, i I see how you could get uh stuck in your ways or if you're in a a pattern or a habit loop that has been going for for such a long period of time it feels like it can be really challenging to break out of that because seemingly the grooves on the habit seem very deep.
1: That's especially true when, like, being stuck in a rut or a gutter and -hmm. you get back out on the pavement only to find yourself back in the gutter again and then you work really hard or whatever to get back on the pavement and all of a sudden you're back in the gutter again. Mm -hmm. Then you get back up on the pavement. And what we don't realize is is that getting back up on the pavement is the skill that we're wanting to develop And the ability to stay on the pavement is the next skill to be developed. Hmm. But what we do is we hate being in the gutter. And Hmm. so um, what's really going on here is is that we don't know that we can change, that we think that we're stuck in the gutter. Because we've been in the gutter so many times. And uh, the real... Point is, is that we can change that. We can get out of the gutter. then in fact, what's really going on in most people's lives is sometimes you're in the gutter and sometimes you're on the road. I like to say it sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. Sometimes we are riding a horse backwards and sometimes we're riding it forwards. <clears throat> this is what a Nietzsche is all about. Things go in cycles. You can think of it this way. Is things black or are they white? And as soon as you see things black, they'll begin to turn white. And as soon as you see things white, they'll start to turn black again because everything is in a cycle. And nothing is either black or white. It depends upon who's looking at it and how they're looking at it.
2: Yeah, it almost sounds like seeing a a, a spectrum or like allowing for the gray space uh, or things in between.
1: Another way of talking about it, then, is the big picture really is bigger. Hmm. The big picture is, is that when we begin to see things, that when we're close to it, let us say that there's a merry-go-round, and, and half of it's painted white, and half of it's painted black. And when we see it, and we see the white side of it, we feel good and we like it. And then when the merry go comes back around and it turns dark, then we don't like it. And we get caught in this wheel of liking and not liking, and we're ignorant of the fact that the merry-go-round is just a merry-go-round. Part of it black and part of it is white. We have to get above it or get away from it. Get get back so that we can get a better perspective. Mm. Okay, so... This merry-go-round that we're talking about actually is the human mind. That sometimes we feel like a nut and sometimes we don't means that sometimes we're having wholesome thoughts and sometimes we're having unwholesome thoughts. And so uh, we need to start paying attention to these thoughts so that we can begin to correct it so that those thoughts that are unwholesome, we can change them to wholesome thoughts right then and there. Because your mind is not a merry-go-round. It's much more pliable than a (laughs) merry-go-round. Okay? And so things come around and go around, but they can go around. And every time you see that this section is unwholesome, you can paint it wholesome again. This is an easy thing to do one by one as they occur. And it seems impossible to do the next time you find some dark place in the Mm merry-go-round. Oh, we've been through this and there it is all dark again. Oh, poor me. Okay, and we go back into our dark space when we see the dark areas on the merry-go-round and we start to have a pity party again. Instead of saying, hey, there's just another thing to paint. We can paint that too. We can take that unwholesome thought out and put a new wholesome thought in until we get to the point that we have one wholesome thought after another, after another. And when we have that, that's a really big congratulations. And we recognize that Oh, I can have wholesome thoughts one after another, after another. And Perfect. that's when we can actually begin to relax.
2: Part of my mind has a question right now about okay. the, the uh, tendency to cover over problems. So mm-hmm. um, I think it, it might be like called spiritual bypassing in Western circles. And I'm wondering how that plays in when I'm looking at unwholesome thoughts. Um, How do I know that I'm not just, let's say, covering over them or sort of suppressing or pushing away or uh, engaging in a negative relationship with unwholesome thought?
1: Well, you already, most people anyway do, already have an unwholesome relationship with unwholesome thoughts. And the way that I would say that is, is that they spent their whole lives talking themselves into feeling bad. By judging. okay. then in fact, the judgmental thoughts, the thoughts of comparison, the thoughts of I like this and I don't like that. This is good and this is bad. Or this is a nut and this is not. Or this is black and this is white. That's the whole point then is to recognize that we go around judging things. And in that judgments come that liking and not liking, and from that liking and not liking comes the wanting, the desire, and then the clinging. So the liking and not liking is uh, what we need to start working on right at at that point when we can start to remember. This is why the Buddha talks about it in the sense of one's right effort is to see an unwholesome thought as an unwholesome thought and then change it from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. In the Anapanasati Sutra, they use the concept of gladdening the mind or brightening the mind, which is really wholesome. To brighten one's mind or to gladden the mind is a very wholesome thing to do, as opposed to darkening one's mind, reminding oneself of all the problems and worries that are in one's life.
0: Mm-hmm. If we can start,
1: as the Life of Brian movie, um, Monty Python pointed out, look on the bright side of life. But we have to remember to do that because we're so interested in looking on the dark side of life. And so going back to your question about um, the delusion the delusion is that people have is that even though this thought is so harmful and so unwholesome it's okay because it's my thought Mm. at least they're my thoughts and i can think anything that i want to think and you can't go around telling me what to think okay this is in fact much of what i've just said in that little uh, quotation is not true Mm. in the fact that they're not my thoughts most right. likely what it is is that stuff that I've heard someplace else that just remembered it, and now I'm repeating it without giving due um, uh, recognition to the sources. You see people doing that with plagiarizing material in writing in universes or what and everybody keeps saying, no, 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 you're supposed to cite your sources. And here we go around all day long. Not citing the sources for the thoughts that we have, thinking that they're my thoughts. So that's one kind of delusion, right there.
2: Yeah, certainly it feels like thoughts are an impersonal process uh, because yeah, they're they're coming from your parents, your education, you know what you heard on a podcast, or that, that that's what happens to me. Like if I'm if I have something in my ear all the time, I find it has a way of making its way into my my speech
1: exactly but seeing that now is part of the waking up process Mm. because when people are um asleep and not thinking even if they've been practicing meditation for years and they haven't uh gotten to the real uh grits of what's going on they still don't see that these are not my thoughts that in fact that's the whole point of the noting method is because people will say well what do you want?" what should be noted and the answer is always to note what's there and to keep noting what's there which means they get really good at noting what's there without making any determination discriminations about it and if they get very very good at noting what's there that means they get very good at seeing the dukkha that's there and it's almost like a, a good meditator who's practicing the Mahasi noting method is moving into the garbage pit of his own mind. He moves into his own city dump, and all he sees is the garbage, which is not at all the teaching of the Buddha. So, this is one of the ways that we become deluded is, is that we get used to the kind of thoughts that we have and think that they're okay as they are. Hmm. Rather than recognizing, no, we've got to make some discrimination here because we actually uh, have some kind of thoughts that make us feel bad. And we have some kind of thoughts that make us feel good. That's why we feel good sometimes and bad sometimes is because of the kind of thoughts that we're having. Okay, so let us say that somebody's got an interview coming up, an interview, let's say, for a job. And he can have the kind of thoughts of, well, they really are expecting a lot, and I'm not sure that I've got the qualifications to do this, but I'm going to go in there and do the best I can, okay? He's got the, the loser's mentality, and sometimes losers get the job when all the contestants are losers. But he can also go into that with the point is, is that I know this company. I've done my research. I've got this job wired. I've got no problems with this thing, and I'm going to go in there, and my job now is to be friendly and uh, 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 jovial and happy with the interviewer, and win the interviewer over to my side. In other words, I don't see the interrogator as an interrogator and me the victim of his interrogation. I just see two friends meeting. This is a mental attitude that you can
2: develop.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I have a, a question, and that is related to what you said about thinking everything's OK as it is. So if you have unwholesome thoughts that are coming up and you say seem- that's not thinking that everything
1: is OK, the unwholesome thoughts are the thoughts that are thinking something's wrong here. You've gotta fix this, you've got work to do tomorrow, you've gotta to answer that email, you've gotta clean up your room, you've got a network that you've gotta reconfigure, you've gotta you gotta you gotta you gotta do this, that, and the other thing are all the unwholesome thoughts. When you're having thoughts of everything is okay, then you're having those kind of thoughts. And you can tell the difference between those.
2: Yeah, because I feel like from one standpoint, allowing what's there would stop that that push-pull interaction uh, and you know allow you to take that step back but at the same time allowing the unwholesome thoughts also feels like it would just you know allow but that's,
1: that's your default position that's your familiar position that's the way you've been doing things all along this is going to take a little bit of effort <laughs> But it gets rewards immediately. Wow, what a relief it is. I don't have to think about that argument I had with Aunt Susie. Mm. That we can find relief in the taking our dinner out of the fire. Mm. That's the whole point about how is Nirvana is because you have to take the fire out of the mind. What is the fire? The burning the wanting the desire the desire to get the desire to uh to get uh, away from the desire from wanting things and so the kind of cooling thoughts that we would have would be everything is all right i do not have to need nabana what i've got right now is good enough the will come when i feel everything is all right enough right now everything is all right enough for right now and i don't have to worry about the future This is good. This nirvana is good enough. It's good enough. That's the way that we need to start looking at it is right now is good enough. And having unwholesome thoughts is not good enough.
2: Mm. Okay, That puts things in perspective.
0: Um, Did I lose you? You may be frozen. Okay. Okay, you're back. All right.
1: Yeah. All right. So, this is kind of a subtle thing because Mm -hmm. if we tell ourselves that the thoughts that we're having are okay, but in fact the thoughts that we're having are unwholesome, then that would be a delusion, is to say that the thoughts are okay when in fact they're not like the young girl who, with a razor blade, is cutting uh, her arm and saying, this is an okay thing to do. That's delusional.
2: Yeah, I think it, it takes some discrimination, I think, to, yeah, to recognize. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, that that makes sense to me. Um, so, in terms of coming out of unwholesome into wholesome, gladdening the mind, every, Things okay. Everything's all right. Um, the wholesome thoughts, the smiling, the taking the deep breath, seem to be part of the strategy to get things rolling. Um, and then you're rolling. And then and then you're rolling. Okay. And that's okay. Right. Because
1: the only place and the only time that we can practice is right here, right now. Let's get results right here right now and this feel cheerful and glad about results that we're getting right here right now. We become satisfied with right here, right now, and then we feel successful at being right here, right now. And that's basically all there is to it. Because there's always just a right here and a right now, but Western mindset is all about future. Yeah. Well, other than recognize, it's only one thought that I've got right now that I have to change from an unwholesome to a wholesome thought. There's only one of them in the mind moment, and every mind moment is a new mind moment. And yet we think about mind moments by the tens of years of them, mm-hmm. and then it's a great big bag of stuff.
2: Yeah, there was a good analogy uh, during a workout where. Uh, my instructor told me, uh, think of 10 reps in a set as 10 sets of one rep. So you just have mm-hmm. to think of the one that you're doing as opposed to the nine that are going to come right after that, where you start thinking, can I do this? Uh, can I do all 10? And you're thinking, as opposed mm-hmm. to just the perfect form on one rep. Okay, that's
1: actually excellent, that's right view, at least ordinary right view, right noble view would be at least just one more step Mm. Just step, Just one more step, just one more step, just one more step, just this one, only this one, can you do this one, can you do this one, can you do this one that's the way that we look at it: is one moment at a time, one second at a time, one feeling at a time in this present moment. How am I doing right now? Everything's okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of me is going, okay, where does that lead? Or it doesn't lead anywhere except into this moment. This is a good moment. Where you want to go already?
0: <laughs>
2: I. I think it's into the attainment sort of space that when people talk about uh, you know, Sakadagami, Anagami, you start thinking like, um, I mean. <laughs> but
1: they're looking at an advance in the place to think about where they have never been. Right. Which means that it's always a construction, a mental construction. Right, And one of the fetters there is the fetter of ill will and anger. Mm -hmm. And the question then would be not what is it going to be like to live off into the future being free from anger. The question is, the anger that I experience right now, how am I going to deal with it? Mm -hmm. If I could deal with the anger that I have right now skillfully, There's basically the way of looking at anger is the sense that there is anger that you wake up to, and then there's the anger that you didn't wake up to. And normally what happens is is that we have a whole lot of anger going on before we wake up to it, and then the real anger starts because we know we're angry. But some people, in fact, can be angry and not even know it. The, the old joke is that you go into the bar and there the guys are really yelling and angry, angry with each other and you and somebody says, you guys cool it. Don't get angry. And both of them turn and say almost red-faced, I'm not angry. Yeah. And yeah. we're just having a discussion here. And I both see. of them are about to kill each other. <laughs> okay, yeah. so we have a lot of denial in anger. And our job as Dhammedus is how soon can we come out of our denial of the anger and wake up to it and see that there it is? How many angry words do you have to speak before you recognize there is anger in your words? How many breaths do you have to take before you recognize there is anger in this breath? Okay, so here's the way that this works. is, Is that... After uh, we begin to wake up to anger, we begin to see when we're acting angry, and we begin to interrupt it. Let us say that we can, after five harsh or seven harsh words, find do we wake up to it. And then we begin to get on alert. I'm not going to get angry anymore. I want to hear that angry word. And so uh, we get fairly good at down to just one word. We'll let one word out. Like, ah! And then we stop. That's just just enough. We let it out that much. And then we get a veteran improvement. And that new improvement then is is that we get angry, but we don't let it out at all. Because we know how to jive in, jive in, and we cool off. And then later comes a time when just the niggle of anger is beginning to start. And we cut it off before it even gets to even internal anger. It's just... Um, a, a niggle of ill will or not liking it yeah I don't like it but that's okay
2: yeah I find like if it if it comes up in me I just I take a deep breath and that seems to um, take care of it I think I lost you one
0: more time connection wise.
1: Okay, you're back.
2: Yeah, sorry, I lost you. I was just saying Uh, uh, I take a deep breath and that tends to cool off the anger. Like if I see it arising, I can take a deep breath and that tends to sort of put it out before it it starts in a sense.
0: All right.
2: So the the mindfulness to catch it. All
1: right. So there will come a stage when you can uh, not like it. But that's okay that you don't like it. Uh, a way of saying that is back to a statement that Achan Samedo had to a question that Achan Cha had asked him when he was in the vicinity of a lot of young Thai women who were well-dressed intentionally. And that um, uh, Achan Chai asked Samedo, what do you think? And he says, I like it, but I don't want it. I like it, but I don't want it. So we can turn that around now to anger. It's that I don't like it, but that's okay.
0: Hmm.
1: I don't like it, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not even going to bother to feel bad about it. I just don't like it. and just leave it at that. This is what you would call wise feelings. When we're wise enough to know that we like something, we don't like it, but that's okay. We don't have to get angry. We don't have to want it to be different than it is. But that's what anger is: is when we don't like something, we want it to change, and we want it to change. We really want it to change, and that's when we start to cling to the opposite of that, and that's where the anger comes from. The woeful state of being in hell is wanting something desperately that you can't have.
2: Yeah, I guess where the confusion arises for me is, you don't want it to be different than how it is but if it's unwholesome and you can do something about it you do want it to be different
1: is it on the inside or the outside though Hmm. because if it's inside the mind and you and it's unwholesome and you want to get rid of it out it goes if it's something unwholesome on the outside world just because you want it doesn't mean it's going to do the way you want it to do that that's in fact Our judgment of society, where in fact the problem is never the society or the things on the outside that you see that's wrong or broken or needs to be fixed. It's always our attitude and our view of it. But the reality is, is that even if Johnny's angry, it's okay that it's with me that Johnny's angry. That's Johnny's issue. He's not my business. I don't have to get angry at Johnny because he's angry at me. Hmm.
2: Yeah. It seems like the Stoic idea of the wisdom to know what you can change. The, the right, exactly. Except
1: that there is a kavat in there. And the kavat is, is that we can very wisely understand that the things that we cannot change are the things that we are not us or not inside. That we can change the things that are on the inside. We can develop the skills. But we cannot fix the Democratic Party. (laughs)
0: Right.
1: We cannot fix those things because we have a whole lot of people who are trying to fix it one way or the other and all they're doing is just being in competition and fighting with each other over which way each individual wants to take things. Hmm. So the wisdom is, is that we can change what's in our own mind. And that's where the, uh, the, and by the way, that prayer is used in Alcoholics Anonymous Mm. a lot. That's That's the AA prayer, they say, is God grant me the serenity to leave alone the things that I cannot change. And the courage to change the things that I can change and the wisdom to know the difference. And that wisdom is actually inside or outside because the things that are happening on the outside I can't change and yet this is how our society has been teaching us that if you don't that if you don't have something that you want and you feel bad because you don't have it then the right way to do is to go fix the outside world so that you do have what you want and then you'll feel good that's what our society teaches that's what business is founded upon you, you don't feel good about yourself I come buy my product and then you'll feel good Come vote for my party. Come put money in my offering plate at my church with my religion. Or come to my classes on YouTube or my classes on the Internet or my classes at school or come buy something I've got to sell. Those are the four. Government, religion, education and big business. Always have it that they've got your solution to your problems if you go to them. Grab, <laughs> grab. That's it. That's the grab. Okay. <laughs> and they are all there to to uh, to prove to you that with their help you can change the things that, in fact, you can't change. Mm-hmm. And so we have to get that's the wisdom is to see the lies that have,
2: that we are told. Yeah, I suppose like my I have questions arising around activism and you know what good we actually can do in the world.
1: Well, uh, both the activist and the ones that they are activating against, they're all unhappy. If you're going to associate with activists, you're going to that their unhappiness is going to rub off on you. Hmm. So if you're going to go to activists if, uh, and you have enough joy, enough joy juice to feed the whole crowd, then your joy can rub off on them. But more than likely in a crowd of activists, their activism is going to rub off on you. And and so maybe going and staying with activists is a perhaps dangerous thing to do.
2: Yeah, I I think about the be the change you wish to see in the world.
1: Uh, yeah, except that be the change that you wish to see in
0: your own mind. Screw the world. <laughs> Not. I lost you again. <laughs> right, so good yeah, okay. sorry, I
1: lost you. That's no problem. I lost I'm wondering Screw the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's actually a humorous way to say it. But the world is not my responsibility to fix. Yeah. But the world is certainly trying to get me to do it. I mean, everybody who's talking about activism, this and that, and, and global warming and COVID and all of this kind of stuff. There's all kinds of things to get active in, but the activism doesn't, call, doesn't solve the internal uh, issues that each individual activist has. If the activist, in fact, would go home, sit down, think over his life, like they say in Star Wars... And get his act together mentally so that he was happy and well-adjusted and everything like that. He wouldn't care so much about what he was active about. Then, in fact, if he was an activist about global warming, then he would recognize that it was his job to stop driving around all of these uh, uh, protests. Save a little bit of gas. Stay home. Yeah. Internal. Yes, make it, bring it home. Always bring everything home. That the problems of the world are not out there. The problems of the world is inside my own mind and my own attitude about the world. Another way of thinking about it, and this is kind of advanced, so hang on with me. Right now, global warming is not bothering you very much in this very moment. I mean, you've got a shirt on, but that's all. So global warming must not be much of an issue right now. You can handle global warming, right? So if you can get into the uh, habit of getting in uh, okay with the way things are now, even if things start getting a little warmer, you can still be okay with the fact that things got a little warmer. You can handle it. If you happen to live in a house where there's enough flooding that comes, you can handle the first flood, but maybe the right thing to do is to move to higher ground. Then you don't have to deal with the floods.
0: With global warming, you can't fix. You can only fix what you can do.
1: But if a whole lot of people do what they can do, an example of that is Miami. Miami, because of the groundwater and the and the way that the pours and all of that kind of stuff, they have a huge um, a problem in Miami. The right thing to do is for people to move out of Miami, go someplace else, that so they feel safe and secure. I invite anybody who lives in Miami and is worried about global warming, come live on my porch. You can do. It. You're safe here.
2: Yeah, I think the logistics of relocating, you know, all coastal cities, but is like I'm not
1: trying to locate a coastal city. I'm talking about one dude, right, who wants to do something about global warming. Then instead of being an activist, the thing to do would be move to higher ground and be comfortable. And all
0: of a sudden, you've heard you you've changed one dude. You. Okay, you're back.
1: Just what I was saying is, is that you're only one person. One person can move to higher ground, and you're trying to move a city instead. You can't move a city, not you personally, but you can move to higher ground, you personally. So that's the wisdom is let the city take care of itself. One person at a time making the decisions for themselves one at a time. That when we think of the whole city having to move that's kind of grandiose thinking and we're taught to think in in grandiosity which is also um, a way of the mind working that as children one of the things that we do as children is learn to make associations and we learn about family associations and oh and billy belongs to that family etc like this and so by doing those kind of associations, we begin also to see that some associations are open-ended. They're huge. And so we begin to then invent things that fall into a grandiose setting. All right, in the fact, there is no such thing as a city. There are a whole lot of individual buildings close together, but city, that's the mentality. That's the mindset, but it's not the mindset of one person, it's the mindset of a whole lot of people. It's the collective. But you can't change a whole bunch of people. Nobody could do that. You can only change your own mind. This is back to that wisdom again. To be able to change the things that you can change and the wisdom to know that there are a whole lot of stuff that you can't change. Here's another way of looking at it. And that is the definition of the word world. How big is your
2: world? The things that are in my immediate vicinity, the place I go to work when I'm there.
1: Oh, you've heard me before. I thought that I was going to trick you into, oh, well, I've got an Andromeda galaxy, and I've got satellites, and I've got stuff all over the place in my world, okay? But all of that's always conceptualized. That the actual world that we have is the world that we are are in some sort of touch with. Uh, in the teaching of Metta, they talk about uh, the six directions of the compass Mm. and the western idea of the compass is is that it's not just a compass that's pointing north we immediately think of north poles and north stars and north 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 kinds of things and so when we talk about the six points of the compass there's no end to north to where in the actual uh, poly in the old concept The six points of the compass had to do with the people immediately around us and the the fact that North is only the people that I'm in communication or in base with or in business with, perhaps uh, fellow students at a school, that kind of thing. Okay, so the people that we deal with. Then we have our friends on one side and our family on the other, and then we have those that we've either turned our back on or the people who are trying to stab us in the back behind us. And then above us, we would have like the teachers, the police, politicians, your boss, whoever it is that you put above you. And it's not a whole fixed set of people, but it's who you imagine to be above you. And then there are those below you like gas pump attendants, um, sales clerks, Uh, food waitresses, housekeepers, um, servants, this kind of people would be those below you. But it's always people that you know and see and have contact with. So the idea, let all the world be happy, is just a conceptualized kind of thing. Can't not exist. That kind of world does not exist. Mm -hmm. So in reality, we have new rainstorms. The reality is we don't have global warming. I don't even know what global warming is. It's still always just a concept. But what people are beginning to understand is is that they experience global warming by too much rain, too cold in the South, desertification, lack of rainwater, forest fires. This is how people actually experience it but we call it global warming because that's just a concept in trying to lump all of those things together. Yeah. So if if we look at it from uh, the perspective of what's happening right here in this locality, that in fact, if I hate global warming and want to activate about it, then what can I do right now about it? One is is that I can turn the heat off in my own mind, that I'm contributing to global
2: warming by hating it.
0: <laughs>
2: wow. Global warming. Nibbana. The global warming. <laughs> that's, exactly. That's deep for me, Dabbarato. Pardon? <laughs> I said, that's too deep now for me. That's too
1: deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just chill, baby. Just chill out.
2: Oh. Nibana, the global warming in your mind. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense for, for meta being the people that I know that are close to me, that I see every day um, that are part of my world, uh, as opposed to conceptual, like all beings and in all directions, which seems like a really seems like a nice idea. But
1: for almost all of us, Washington, D.C., is just a concept. it's just a concept we don't i mean we've seen photos and things like that i've actually been there but when i was in washington dc it was uh uh, the museums i was in the library of congress you know so my version of washington dc is completely different than most because all they have of washington dc is fox news cnn (laughs) yeah there's msnbc
2: different versions of washington dc
1: or there's yeah there's so many different versions of it there's not there's not one place washington dc there's thousands of them Mm -hmm. and then and none of them are between maryland and virginia almost all of the washington dcs are between the ears That's the conceptualization that we've got to go fix a great big world is too big. We can't do that. And not only that, but the world that we're trying to think of to fix is merely a mental conception in our own mind anyway. So all we have to do is change that mental conception from, gosh, it's going to be really terrible. Things are going to get really bad in the next 15 or 20 years. we really got to do something about global warming. Actually, we're hot right now. Why don't I do something about my own internal globe warming? I say, never mind. I don't have to worry about global warming. There are enough people already worried about global warming. Let them do something about it. I'm going to sit here and cool off. I'm going to do my little version of uh, uh, protesting global warming by having my globe chill. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's Nibbana, is just chill, everything's okay. I don't have to think about how bad things can get. I can think of instead of how good things can get, how nice it is, How what a nice day it is. Global warming and all, this is such a nice day. Everything's okay. Not a problem in the world. These are the kind of thoughts then that are so much more wholesome and helpful, healthy than thoughts of, oh my God, things are going to get really bad. I wish we could do something about the oil industry. They're so bad people.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know, Damorato about the, the meme of the dog sitting inside the burning building and the dog is saying everything's okay or like everything's fine. And the whole building uh, that the dog is in is on fire. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but I'm I'm wondering, like, where is where is the line? I guess in that in that particular case, get out of the building.
1: Um, Okay, here's the point, though, that a lot of people don't. they, They think that the dog is too stupid to look around. That the dog is, is actually in a way, in fact, I don't think that you could find a dog that would be so stupid that it would sit in a burning building and laying comfortably and happy with perhaps the thought everything is all right. No, dogs are not as stupid as humans. Humans will go into a burning building. Dogs will come out. Okay, so in that regard, if you're sitting in a burning building, you should get out of it. That's wisdom. As well as, more than likely, you're going to be terrified with fear, and the fear itself is going to get you out of the building. And in fact, the fear may trap you desperately trying to get out of a building, but you're not seeing things clearly and logically. That's why they uh, you've probably heard and seen it even in some cowboy movies, that if a barn is on fire and the, and the horses are in there, they might, in fact, need to blindfold the horses in order to get him out of the barn. Because everywhere the horse looks, he sees fire and he's freaked out. So they will actually blindfold the horse so that the horse can't see where he's going and doesn't get freaked out. And then the trainers can just uh, lead the horse out of the barn. But here's the real point. The point is, is that the room you're in right now is not on fire. And here you are thinking about dogs in a building on fire. Uh, where's the fire? Is the fire, the fire in the building that you're in, or is the fire in the building in your mind again?
2: <laughs> fire is in the meme that I'm describing to you. you know. uh, <laughs> that was a slick Willie out.
1: You got it. <laughs>
2: um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I suppose... It's back to my question about, like, this feels like a really fine line about what is denial, right? Um, Like, oh, everything's okay, everything's fine, when everything is, like, not okay, and everything's not
1: fine. Well, where did that thought come from, everything is fine, and what was the thought before that? Hmm.
2: I think that maybe there was like the recognition there's the sati of like the waking up seeing an unwholesome thought uh and then the like aha i see you mara the throwing it out or the uh uh, returning to whatever the meditation object is or the smiling or the, the feeling of metta okay and then it would be like the intentional calling up of the wholesome that is driving the pattern forward.
1: Okay, well I've got that. But uh, here, here's the the question. Then is about, uh, let us say that the thought that is had is there is work to do. I'll use the example of we've got to write an email. Right. That's the fire that the dog is ignoring. Okay, that there is work to do. Something needs to be done. In that analogy, the work could do the the dog needs to get up and get out of the house. Right? And do not expect the dog to put on fireman's clothing and and piss on a hydrant or something to put the fire out. Dogs, that's not what dogs do. Okay? So let's talk about it in the sense then that the that the fire represents something that needs to be done. For the dog getting out of the house, for you putting on the fireman's hat and putting out the fire. Okay, so now that we've we've got it, that the fire is actually a job to do. Mm-hmm. And here you are in meditation and having a thought of something to do, but you don't get up out of meditation and go do it. Right. You just sit there thinking about doing it but you don't do it. That's like the dog recognizing that the house is on fire, but he still doesn't get up and get out of it, okay? But the reality here is is that the thought of that work to do, that email to do, that fire in the mind, we're not doing it anyway. So why don't we have thoughts of doing the email when we're actually sitting in front of the computer with the intention of doing the email? Why are we thinking about the email when we're in fact sitting Uh, with the intention of meditating, which means the intention of feeling good, and here we are having fires in the mind.
2: Right, so the email in the context of meditation is a distraction, but the email when you're doing an email is just work to do. It's it's just work to do. And
1: if you practice meditation well, then when you go to do the email, you'll do it well. If you go do the email because you don't want to do the email, then it's drudgery, you might say the wrong thing, you might have the wrong attitude, the thing may be misunderstood or whatnot like that. But if you get yourself into a really good state, and your mind is pure, pure and clean, because you've gotten the fire of that email out of your mind, and now it's just a little old pistol email to do, that you can handle that easily with the attitude I can handle this you'll probably wind up with a better email
2: yeah no frequently like yeah I would say that would be one of the fruits of meditative practice would Mm -hmm. be having that clear bright mind that can handle whatever arises or whatever comes up
1: Right, but you're not going to have that clear, bright mind if you're saying, oh, I've got to think about the email because that's a fire and I better go do it. And then you don't. Hmm. You see, that's what's really going on often is we give ourselves orders to do. We give our things, some things to do, which basically means that it's the critical parent that sets the fire. So the critical parent sets the fire in the mind and then says... Poor dumb dog, get out of the fire. Go do something to get rid of the fire that I've just created in the mind. Thinking about the email creates a fire. The email itself is not a fire, but needing to get it done is an urgency. So I'm calling that a fire. We feel urgent. We feel like we've got to go do something. And then we don't do it, but we're left with the feeling of urgency. So, when we finally do get to the email, we do that with urgency. When the urgency was always optional, right from the very beginning, there was no fire.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Your house is not on fire. That's the reality. The delusion is is that you are a dog sitting in a house on fire saying there's no fire. That's the delusion. The reality is is that you're a dog sitting in the house and there's no fire. But you're thinking
2: about a fire. (laughs) Yeah. There's layers to this. Um, (laughs) I want to see if somebody's good with their Photoshop skills, they will go and make that. Um,
1: (laughs) I can see that the house on fire and the dog sitting there becomes a balloon. Yeah, yeah. And there the meditator below is thinking about,
2: yes, I get Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it just like the email just is, it's just a thing, the urgency, is the thing that is created. Mm-hmm. That think- urgency <laughs> actually,
1: guess what? The urgency is old. We picked up that urgency in childhood Because the parents or the teachers told us that it was important. They urged us to go do it. And so we picked up the feelings of urgency. And now we're sitting in meditation as an adult feeling urgent. And there's no fire. Right. But every thought about getting something done brings on that feeling of urgency. Oh, I gotta go do this. Oh, I gotta go to the bank. Oh, I gotta go put gas in the car. Oh, I gotta go buy this on the internet. Oh, I gotta go and I gotta go and I gotta go. Guess what? You know, you can sit and enjoy your life in for a moment anyway. Just sit and no place to go and nothing to do. And let all of that sense of urgency melt away. But we have to do it in a reality, in the sense of you have to make sure that where you are is safe. you got to open your eyes and look for sure. Is that room on fire or not? Look around. I mean, I'm looking
2: here at the portion. No,
1: no, no fires. (laughs) He's not
2: on fire. Yeah, I think that there I'm trying to remember the sutta. I think it is sutta number two. Where there are are the things to be, like, avoided, uh, and it, it it is, like, just avoiding, of av- you know, avoiding the, the mental movements and the mental habits of mind that are, you know, unwholesome, but also the real life scenarios of, you know, not going where it's dangerous or avoiding elephants and dogs, and th- there was a whole list of things to, like, right there is that section in that
1: sutta about it goes this uh asava uh to be avoided by knowledge mm-hmm. those to be anointed uh uh dealt with by using those to be dealt with by avoiding etc like that that's the way that that sutta is set up the very very first part of it is about uh, the the defilement is to be dealt with by uh, seeing, is actually the word that is used. You look and you see. And then the Buddha talks about it in the sense of there are things that are um, worthy of attention. And there are things that are not worthy of attention. And the things that are not worthy of your attention are such that by paying attention to them our well-being decreases. And when we're paying attention to things that are worthy of being paid attention to, then our welfare increases. And then he gives some examples of the things that are not worthy of attention, like who am I, what was in the past, what will the future be? Okay, so questions about who am I are not worthy of attention. The reason why who am I is not a worthy question is because you don't have a good answer to it. There's no question, there's no answer anywhere. I mean, we have been, people have been asking who am I for the past 2,000 years and no one has ever come up with a decent answer to that question. Yeah, and Part it's, of the reason for that is because every one of us who asked that question, we're a crowd inside. Sometimes we feel like a nut, sometimes we don't, sometimes we this, sometimes we're that. I invite every student, go write down on a piece of paper all of your attributes to define who you are. And then go do that same list again tomorrow, and you'll find out you've got a different list than you did yesterday. Who you are keeps changing, so that's not a useful uh, way of of uh, trying to ask the question. I see that on Reddit, um, where people will ask uh, what are the right questions? And somebody who says, "I know, I know the answer to that." The right question to ask is, "Who am I?" No, no, that's not the right question to
0: ask.
2: Yeah, that I would, uh, all balled up. <laughs> I, I was surprised to see that in the sutta because it seems to be, yeah, directly counter to that Advaita Vedanta uh, or Neo-Advaita style of questioning, which is like the school of Ramana Maharshi and
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, uh, I guess I, I countless numbers of teachers today.
1: Well, that's 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 you right. That's what happens is proliferation. Who am I proliferates because there's no end to what you can be. But the wise attention, the appropriate attention, is, uh, and the way that it's stated in the suttas, is this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is what it's like to be free from dukkha, be satisfied, and this is the method, this is the practice to be free from it. Now, uh, in the next sentence in that, it says that someone who understands the Four Noble Truths completely becomes free from personality view. The question, in fact, who am I? As well as Silabhatta Paramasa, which is basically our attachment to the world, how the world should be, how things ought to be, attachment to rights, rules and rituals and ways to do things. The Buddha has that. That's the second fetter, is our attachment to the world about global
2: warming. Right. the, The first three fetters. Yeah, I think like to to be yeah, to be fair to the question, I feel like who am I points to the looking and seeing there's nobody there. Or there is no self like I feel like. It is Anata that is being pointed to in in that question of who am I where you do the search you look and. uh, Or you look the, the analogy is looking for a TV remote and you check under the cushion and there's no TV remote there and you go I looked I turned my attention back and asked the question I looked thoroughly and I didn't find anything so that must prove the point that there is no self or there is this idea. But I, I'm i confused, I think, because in the Buddhist teaching, if I understand it correctly, that's one of the wrong views. There is a self. There is not a self. Um, yeah, uh, th- those were two of two- okay.
1: Here's Here's a way for people to understand that. Uh, in Sutta number 22, the Buddha says uh, that he teaches only one thing, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. He does not teach about a self or no self or any of that kind of stuff, and I'll get into it in just a moment. But his main teaching is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, or the Four Noble Truths. But he was asked that question, uh, that came up because he was accused... That he was reviled and accused of teaching something that he did not teach Hmm. he was he was accused of teaching that upon the breakup and death of the body the being is annihilated right upon the breakup of the body the being is annihilated and the buddha says that he doesn't teach that now one of the things that's very curious about that that he was not accused of upon the breakup of the body the existing being is not annihilated. He does. He wasn't accused of that. He was accused of on the breakup of the body, the existing being is annihilated. Okay, if the being is not annihilated, then that means that the being is possibly going to reincarnate or be reborn. This leads eventually to, and I use the word eventually humorously, eternalism or semi-eternalism. Eternalism means that one is born over and over and over again, that samsara cycles not only in this life, but it cycles to the next life and the next life after that on infinitum, basically. What he was accused of was, no, that existing being dies at death. It's annihilated. This is what we refer to as annihilationism as opposed to eternalism and then there is the quality of wrong view and the wrong view which basically has the statement of i can get away with it is also saying there's no authorities there's no uh, holy men there's no this that and the other thing and basically also saying there is no self that has to be punished so the wrong view the buddha talks about is nihilism so you have nihilism you have um uh Annihilationism, and you have two forms of eternalism, either full eternalism or semi-eternalism. But semi-eternalism means that it's eternal for a long, long time and then it'll be over, but it's still a long, long time into the future. It might as well be seen as eternalism. Okay. But the teaching of the Buddha is nowhere in that list. What is it that the actual is the teaching of the Buddha? Is much more a uh, you could use the, the term, he was a temporarily anatomist. He was not a nihilist. He was not um, um, annihilationist. He was not uh, an eternalist. That he, What he taught was, is that when the self is created and becoming, it does that in order to do the experiencing of the dukkha. But the self is actually the vessel within which dissatisfaction is carried. And when there is no dissatisfaction, there is no self to carry that dissatisfaction.
2: Right. My suffering. I am
1: suffering. Mine. Exactly. Okay. So when we think of it as ownership or mine, but a better word to use, because basically this is a translation error. The way that the word should have been translated, anatta, should better be translated is no soul, not no self. Because what we're talking about here is there's no eternal soul. But there is this self that comes up in certain circumstances based upon conditions. Here comes the, the whole point of the teaching of Paticca Samupada or papajayata of the Buddha, that things happen due to dependencies. Samupada think, means that things come into existence or they are real, they become real because of a condition, The teacher. Conditions everything. So there will be conditions for selfishness, and then there will be times where there are no conditions for selfishness, which means there's no selfishness there. We can think of it, in fact, as the distinction between altruism, when we're thinking of friends, when we're thinking of compassion, when we're thinking of goodwill towards all people, then we're altruistic, we're not being selfish, we share. But then when we feel afraid, when we're in fear, we want to protect the self. And so we become selfish. And when we're becoming selfish, that means I am not going to give my money to my friend because it's mine. And I need it for my the survival. Self,
2: the self that arises is temporary. Is it's temporary. Is like oh this is a fearful self or this is a self that is a sad selfish, self or, yeah or a sad self okay mm-hmm. so there's sad okay. self no. anxious selves there's fearful selves
1: there is um uh, unrequited love selves hmm. but joy is different than that because joy is almost never selfish joy you've got so much of it you want to share with other people
0: You don't want to try to keep your joy. You want to share that.
1: Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That joy is not selfish, but fear is selfish. I want to protect myself. I want weapons. I feel sad, and I want other people to feel sad too. Misery loves company. Now I can feel really griefful on my own when my mom dies, but if I can get everybody in the family to come grieve with me, boy, can we have a a grief party. party. Misery loves company and the company is always company by selves.
2: That everyone is selfish. Pity party, not pity party.
1: Yes, exactly. We can have a pity party or a pity party up to you. (laughs)
2: Yeah, let's
1: have a PC party. Yeah, all right. Because the peace party is the one who is had by winners. We can win this. you probably heard me say before that everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. dirt yeah. The question is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt or are you going to be sitting on top of it? That's where nirvana is. Once you're sitting on top of the world, then you can chill, relax. If you're buried under all that dirt, then things get hot. We're bothered. You we want out. Right, but when you're on top of your own pile of dirt, you're free. Hmm.
2: Yeah, so we have to get on get on top of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And what is that to get on top of then our dirt,
0: which means to get on top of our unwholesome thoughts.
1: To remove the unwholesome thoughts and have happy thoughts instead. And there is some subtlety in there. One, one of the things that I'll, I will say is, is that right view is a skill to be developed and that you're actually asking the right kind of questions. These are the kind of questions that right view would ask in order to to see what is unwholesome and what is wholesome. Some things we absolutely know for sure are unwholesome and some things that we know are absolutely wholesome but there's a huge gray area in there. Yeah, yeah, okay. Thoughts of harm, thoughts of setting bombs, thoughts of putting bombs together, thoughts of blowing up Washington DC. These are all unwholesome thoughts.
2: Those are
1: unibomber thoughts? <laughs> yeah, unibomber thoughts are definitely unwholesome thoughts. Even multi-bomber thoughts are unwholesome. Mm-hmm. So, thoughts yeah. of harm, thoughts of doing some damage to ourselves, thoughts of suicide are unwholesome. And then we can have those kind of thoughts that we know absolutely are wholesome. No place to go, nothing to do. The spring comes and the grass grows by itself. That's a very wholesome thought. It's easy to see. How about everything's all right? Everything's fine. That's a wholesome thought.
2: Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day.
1: Zippity-doo-dah, what a wonderful day. That's a wholesome thought. I feel good. Da-da-da-da. I knew I would now. That's a wholesome thought. Okay, so we begin to see that there are some thoughts that are definitely wholesome. Mm-hmm. And then there is a gray area, vast area in between, which I would call junk thoughts, to where in the beginning the student would think, well, these are thoughts are okay. Thoughts about going to work tomorrow and thoughts about what I'm going to do tomorrow, those are not so unwholesome thoughts. Well, maybe they are unwholesome if they are preventing you from feeling really good right now. If you're having thoughts about going to work tomorrow and you feel like crap, then those are not wholesome thoughts. But if you're having wholesome thoughts about, wow, I'm going to really take care of that thing tomorrow. I know exactly how to handle the boss and I know exactly how to handle that network or whatever the job's going to be and you're doing it with great gusto. I can't wait to get in there tomorrow because I'm going to take care of that situation. Then that's very wholesome. Hmm. So a lot of this has to do with attitude.
2: So where the does attitude
1: of the winner the attitude I can do this?
2: Where does right attitude? How it? Because I I know right view, right intention, right speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration.
1: Okay. Normally, Sanma Sankapa is translated as either right intention or right thought. And you can see that both of them are somewhat correct in the sense that if you have the right attitude or let us say you have a certain attitude, then the thoughts that you will have will be contained within that attitude. Hmm. In other words, if you're having very, very fond thoughts about your sister, you're not also having mixed in thoughts with weapons that you're going to use on her. But if you're having thoughts of hatred for your sister, then thoughts of weapons to use on her may get mixed in with that. Okay, so your attitude determines the kind of thoughts that we're having. Okay. I also don't generally use the word intention because intention often has the quality of wanting or desiring built into it in the sense of wanting something that you don't have. But the attitude is the attitude that we start with is normally the attitude of a loser, the attitude of a victim, the attitude I need help, the attitude of I do want something from someone because I don't have it myself. And change that into the attitude of I do have everything that I need. Because then your thoughts will be different. If you have the victim's attitude, then you're having thoughts of sucking up. Sure, sure. If you're having the winner's attitude, you don't have those kind of thoughts. Now that you see that, that's it. Okay, so you can understand why they've translated this thought, but we're looking at something not just um, this instant or this tenth of a second thought. Because we are. We are talking about this individual thought. But now we're talking about the behind that thought is the, the intention or... Better still, the attitude. So, if you have an attitude of a winner, you're not going to have loser's thoughts. And if you have a loser's uh, attitude, you don't have winner's thoughts. If you do, they're fake, they're false, they're not real. Yeah. Thoughts like, oh, we'll get through this somehow. Oh, don't worry about me, I'll be okay.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like smiling seems like a a good, easy way out of some of that loser's victim mentality, like the body language. It feels psychophysical, like in terms of like how I how I hold myself, my attitude towards things like the posture, (laughs) like facial
1: posture and attitude are very closely related. Yeah. If you've got an upright attitude, you're going to have an upright posture. If you have a victim's loser's weighted down attitude, you're going to show that in your body posture too. So it's really deeply related. We are integrated that way that our body... Um, Influences and affects our feelings, our feelings influence and affect the mind. The mind influences and affects our feelings and the mind influences and affects the body. These things all work together. And this is one of the things that we can begin to see. Oh, if I have control over my mind and have control over my breathing in my body, then I can also begin to control my feelings. I can control the way I feel. How do we do that? If we're going to, if we're wanting to have wholesome feelings, then we have wholesome thoughts. The way I say it is we have been our whole lives talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. Having nibbana thoughts will give you the feeling of nibbana. Everything is cool. Everything is all right. I can handle this. And then you begin to feel like everything is cool. I can handle this. We literally talk ourselves into the way that we feel. We've always done that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I was just thinking, like, I, I see the interconnection between how thoughts influence feelings, how the body influences the feelings in the mind. I see that interconnection. I've just I I think I've I feel like I've heard some other teachers talk about keeping the two separate like the seeing the feelings as feelings and the thoughts as thoughts and because trying to influence the feeling with thoughts like "ah, oh, i shouldn't be feeling this or like go away is just going to proliferate more thoughts as opposed to make the feeling go away like the way out of feeling bad would be uh to like to try and affect it on a feeling level as opposed to trying to affect it on
1: the thought level of there, there's a difficulty or a catch-22. If you feel a particular way and you don't like it and want to feel different, mm-hmm. then uh, wanting something that you don't have makes it worse. That's right. real dukkha. If I am feeling sad and I don't like feeling sad because I've told myself you should not feel sad, then now i'm feeling double sad i'm sad because i'm sad and i'm sad because i can see and judging the sadness that that's a double duty there there's another way of handling it and that is is that okay i recognize there is sadness in there let me explore that for a bit let me breathe into it and see if i can control it and take any use out of it let me breathe into it. Let me notice it. Let me see if I can move it from where it is. Normal sadness is down in the, the bottom gut. Can I move that feeling lower down? Can I move it up? Can I move it up into the chest? By manipulating that feeling of sadness, I begin to take control over that sadness that now I'm not feeling sad. But now I'm feeling curious about the sadness. Mm. Before I was just sad now i'm curious about sadness and that's a major improvement right there
2: yeah curiosity and interest i I feel like takes takes you miles uh i i've heard this referred to as like softening into or like allowing um in terms of recognizing when or noticing when things come up and allowing them to be there
1: Well, feelings are different than when you're looking like that, especially the way that you're holding your hand. That indicates that we don't have any control over the mind, and that's not true. We do have control over the mind, and in fact, we can have fairly quick control over the mind within a second. Feelings, however, are much more chemically oriented. And so for those things, we can't deal with those within a second, but we can deal with them within 30 seconds. Which may seem like a really, really long time if you got your hand caught in the vice. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that's the way then that we deal with it is that we can, if we have turned the faucet of misery on with the thoughts and now we're feeling miserable, we can turn the faucet of the thoughts off and still feel miserable, but we can begin to talk ourselves back into feeling good. In other words, we can now nurture the the misery that we cause ourselves. We get ourselves miserable by, darn it, you really messed that up. You did such a bad job on that. Next time you're going to do even worse. You're a terrible human being. I don't even think I want you around anymore. You know those kind of thoughts that we have, and then we feel miserable. So now we can wake them up, we can wake up and we say, look what I'm doing now. I can nurture myself instead. There, there now. I see that I have made myself all miserable and everything, but we'll get over this. Let's take a deep breath and we'll think of happy thoughts and um, that misery will just kind of melt away. And sure enough, within 10, 20 seconds, maybe a minute later, we feel much better because we stopped having the kind of thoughts that were making us miserable we could do exactly the same thing with the with the adrenaline and anxiousness we can feel really really uptight because we yeah. talked ourselves into feeling really uptight we gave ourselves some job to do oh you've got to go to the bank i mean the bank's going to burn down if you don't get there and get your money out you know and so we feel all anxious but we don't go to the bank we sit there full of anxiety and so now we said wait a minute i see that i'm thinking about the bank and making myself all uptight the bank can take care of itself right now. I'm okay. Let me breathe in and breathe out and feel this anxiety. Get a handle on it. Look what anxiety is. Recognize that I did this anxiety thing by talking myself into it. So now I'm intentionally going to talk myself into coming back to a state of relaxation. Right. Yeah. Just a in the bonnet. You can talk. I can talk. Go ahead.
2: Right. Uh, I talk myself into it. I can talk myself out of it. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you can change the way you talk really quickly. But then you can talk your way out of it, and that takes a half a minute to a minute or whatever. Like that it doesn't take long, especially when you're breathing well. Anxiety is very easy to get rid of. It just doesn't happen in, instantly, but it certainly—you uh, can do it faster than taking a pill. Pill's going to take 20 minutes. You could do this in 20 seconds by turning that faucet that's turning that adrenaline on. You can turn that faucet off, and then breathe, and that anxiety, that tension will just <sighs> melt away.
2: So the thoughts are. The the handles on the faucet, cueing the adrenaline drip. Turn that drink, uh-huh. Negative thought, drip of adrenaline.
1: Negative thought, drip of adrenaline. Exactly. Or sometimes those thoughts are like turning the faucet on full blast for a short time. Mostly, what you were saying, yeah, a little thought gives a little drop of adrenaline. Another little thought gives another drop of adrenaline. When we stop that, that adrenaline clears up. But it's also the possibility that you hear something, or something happens, and immediately it's just, whoa! Yeah, Well-blown I had... A blown anxiety attack instantly, all at once.
2: I had the experience today where I, like, almost knocked something over, and it was that instantaneous response of, like, stopping the bottle or whatever it was from dropping off of a counter that I bumped into. Mm-hmm. And. Yeah, immediately that, like, that response arose in me of, like, yeah, I, I don't want this to fall. I don't want this to break. Now, um, here's the question. Yeah. With that response, did you
1: also have the skill to catch that bottle before it hit the floor and broke?
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: okay. What would you have felt if you had uh, seen all of that, had that response, and the bottle still slipped out of your hand and broke?
2: Oh, I've got to clean it up now
1: Right, <laughs> yeah, but all but also you have the sense and the feeling of failure right mm-hmm. but actually the next thought is well I got to clean it up that could almost be a wholesome thought
2: yeah almost yeah
1: or it's like mm-hmm. it's not a big
2: deal it's like don't cry over it's
1: not, not a big problem. deal yeah I can clean this up now no yeah. problem but oh no, I screwed up when it broke. That's the feeling that causes the big adrenaline rush.
2: Or even worse, like I'm a screw up, like for, I, al- I always do this or yeah, yeah.
1: Right, that's when that critical thought, that critical parent in the mind can go yakety 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 yakety, and we begin to feel really bad. But we can now see that stuff and say, wait a minute, I can clean up this mess happily I don't have to torture myself for the failure I can enjoy the cleanup
2: yeah that's possible for sure
1: yeah well that's the distinction between the critical thinking and the nurturing thinking that Mm -hmm. you criticized your way into it now you can nurture your way out of it
2: yeah it's an attitude shift
1: it is an attitude change isn't it Mm-hmm. and as you develop that attitude it becomes the real attitude of a winner to the point of hey man it doesn't matter how obstructed or um, th- full of hindrance the mind gets I can clean that out I can come back to this present moment I don't have to respond in anger I've got a choice
2: here yeah I, uh, I really see like the responses to things. Some of them are automatic, but some of them I feel like are the ways that we've been taught to respond, um, or we've seen other people respond that way, and so we think of it as drudgery. Like the the example that pops into my mind is like washing the dishes. Like it can be totally fine, or it could be seen as this, you know, drudgery-inducing task that you have to do every day.
1: Often. Mom sets that tone. Billy, it's your time to do the dishes.
2: <laughs>
1: okay. And um, in that regard, with that, I'm reminded of the uh, uh, the old Disney movie of um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And that song, Whistle While You Work.
0: Hmm.
1: You know? So we can wash the dishes and we can be happy. We can whistle. We don't have to have it drudgery. It's all a matter of an attitude. Yeah. And that attitude can be developed. It's a skill to be developed. The skill of, I can do this, I can handle this. This is not a problem. This is not a worry. No worry, folks. In Thai language, they say, My me pan ha, my me a lie. The word a lie means like the word what. Like a lie would just be, What is this? But my me a lie means, Mai mi My me what? Nothing. Forgotten, you know, there's nothing here. My me a lie. There's no, no place, nothing. My me a lie? I like my me a lie. My me a lie. Or my panha means no no panha, no no trouble.
2: My panha? No worries.
1: Yeah. In Australia, they say no worries, mate.
2: Yeah, no worries. No problemo.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the attitude. The attitude is this is not a problem. The attitude of we got this wired.
2: Yeah, no No worries. No worries. It's
1: all good. It's all good. Yes. Okay. These are all wholesome thoughts now. So now we've got a good handle on what's a good wholesome thought. Good wholesome thoughts have to do with everything is all right. Everything's fine. No worries. And unwholesome thoughts are big time worries. (laughs) Yeah. So. Back to Nibbana. What is Nibbana? Nibbana is when we're chilled. We're cool. Everything's fine. No heat. The fire is in the mind. That's where it is. The house is not on fire. Look around. The house is not on fire. (laughs) So you can feel safe and secure. Zach, this has been a really great talk. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm, I'm happy with you. You got, you got it.
2: Thanks, Tomerata.
1: We'll see you soon. Hope see to you see soon. you on the song We got song of. Uh, everybody's getting together on the weekends. We have one for U.S. Have you seen that? Come by.
2: Yeah, I've seen You're it.
1: Invited to join.
2: Great, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. Actually, all right.
1: See you later.
2: Take care.